In this episode of A16Z Live, we are joined by Clayton Gardner, co-founder and co-CEO of New Guard investment platform Titan Invest, A16Z general partner Anish Acharya, and A16Z growth partner Alex Immerman. The trio starts their conversation by diving into the difference between active and passive investment management and where Titan fits into that matrix. Building upon that foundation, they discuss how the fintech market is changing, why historically the best fund managers have not taken retail money and whether that's changing, the importance of curation and UX on competitive platforms, and of course, the role of regulation. As a reminder, please note that the content here is for informational purposes only should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com slash disclosures. Let's dive in. Hi, it's Anisha Charya from Andreessen Horowitz. I'm a partner on the FinTech team here. Alex Zimmerman, also a partner here at A16Z on our growth fund. Hey everyone, I'm Clay Gardner. I'm co-founder and co-CEO of Titan. Titan's a wealth management platform specifically built for a new generation. We were founded about five years ago. We see a world where every actively managed product is no longer only available to the ultra wealthy and institutions, but accessible and available to retail. You can think about us as the distribution layer that brings those sorts of products. You know, we bring retail investors from being in the bleachers to the front row, all in one easy to use mobile app. Super helpful, Clay. I think from our vantage point over the last decade or so, consumer investing strategies have generally fallen into one of two buckets, either passive investing, you can think about ETFs, robos, like Wealthfront, Betterment, or active, do-it-yourself, set a Robinhood. We've seen that younger investors favor active management, but are often not prepared to do it themselves. Clay, it'd be awesome if you could share a bit about how Titan strikes the balance between those two. I think you hit it on the head. There's a third vector of the market, which a lot of folks didn't think existed for retail five years ago. And our idea was quite contrarian when we started, which is this whole space called active management. Y'all know it very well. Hedge funds, VC, private equity, any alternatives are all effectively actively managed. So this world is well-known by institutions, endowments, other allocators. Historically, you can think about the mutual fund of the 80s and 90s being really the only actively managed product for retail. You got on the phone with a guy or a girl. Usually you refer to that person as a broker. They would take stock of your goals, your horizon, how much capital you have to invest. And maybe they'd recommend effectively a few different products where there's a manager doing it for you, buying and selling securities, stocks, bonds, and so forth. That experience has not involved in basically 30 years. And so Titan was founded essentially to modernize the experience of a human behind the scenes managing a portfolio for you. And I think that the traction to date proves that the demand is there for retail. It wasn't that the concept, the behavior, the job to be done of a mutual fund became irrelevant and is now extinct. It was that the solution to that job to be done hadn't evolved to meet the customer where they are today, which you think about on your smartphone, everything's digitally native, it's mobile first, everything is just a few clicks away. And so we've built Titan to bring that same experience to asset management, specifically active wealth management. Just to push on that though, aren't the Bokla heads right? I mean, if we spoke to them a year ago, we would have said, hey, you know, you're all crazy and active is the future and here to stay. And here we're sitting, the S&P is down over 20%, but if you had 100% of your net worth in AMC, that's down 70%. So it does feel like active has had a bit of a tough year. How do you sort of think about that and how do you respond to the critiques of active? 
So I think if you position and break down the space from passive management, active DIY on the other side, and I'll refer to that in this convo as like brokerage or self-directed trading, active management is entirely a third category. You could view it as in the middle of those two poles. Someone who doesn't want to make the decisions themselves, they want a quote-unquote passive experience. They want to ride shotgun or court side to the person making decisions, but they don't want to just be in a handful of set it and forget it type products. They want to be taken along for the ride. A lot of people would obviously prefer some outperformance in addition to the engagement and the education of that experience. But that is effectively what we consider active management. And I think the DIY side you talked about is certainly cyclical. I think if anything, the last few years proved to us that 2020, 2021 were the anomaly. They were not the exception to the rule. It was not the quote unquote new normal. I saw the piece Alex put up, you know, you called it back to the trend line. And I think that's pretty well descriptive of what you're seeing in public markets. And a lot of the retail investors that were stuck at home, pajama trading, are now actually, you know, getting back into the workforce and have realized it's not as easy as it looks. But I think active management is here to stay. And while I think outperformers, underperformers, products that win, lose in a given year, that'll ebb and flow. I think through the cycle over time, especially as you get into like the alternatives, which is a space still pretty ripe with inefficiency and alpha opportunity. And that's honestly where Titan's positioning itself for the future as well. I think you're going to continue to see retail investors want to add those sorts of products to their portfolios. Maybe to that end, historically in down markets, there have been redemptions, there's been less engagement, less usage. No one wants to see their you know, wealth going down. What have you all seen at Titan? I think in periods like these, what we've seen is retention remains near its historic highs. And if you think about the user experience, if we're doing our job right, we're acquiring clients that have a five to 10 plus year view, and we're putting them into a diversified set of products, not only in equities and crypto, which I consider growth assets, you know, but now private credit and real estate, and you'll see more alternatives for us. So for those folks that came in with the right expectations from the product, from the platform, or position across a handful of notes, I like to say, like my co-founder Joe says, you know, for the last 10 years, people were playing one note on the keyboard, which was growth, equity, risk, assets, and nothing else. And now you're starting to see people realize you need a chord of notes. I'm also a piano player. So this analogy resonated with me. So you're going to see a chord of notes continue to be present across our platform. And as a result, there's something for people in any market environment. We like to say we're building more of an all-weather set of behaviors. So retention, near all-time highs. Obviously, people's appetite to take net new risk starts to slow. And that part is quite cyclical, right? So people are not throwing boatloads of capital into crypto, even if it is down 60, 70% this year. And that time will tell whether now is the right time to do that or whether that is the smart decision. Typically, you start to see once we actually bottom and start to make a recovery, people then start to develop that risk appetite. You can think about the machine continues to grind and continues to work. For us, we're just trying to be focused on a diversified set of cords. I don't think the next 10 years will look like the last 10. I don't see ZERP or zero interest policy coming back anytime soon. We're building our business as if the expected returns for equities and crypto will be much, much lower going forward. And the what you need to believe for you know consumers to want to adopt active management is just they find value in getting access to new products they otherwise couldn't have access to, namely alternatives. Talking about alternatives, Clay, it would be great to get your take on why the best fund managers historically have not taken retail money. If you look at the difference between the best fund manager in an asset class like venture or private credit and the difference between the average, I mean, it couldn't be more enormous. So there's a lot of demand and excitement about access to these top managers. Why haven't we topped retail previously? 
Uh, there's a few reasons. You can slice and dice it by different alternatives. And the answer kind of varies. So if you talked about products or asset classes where it's really hard to do what's called an SMA, it's really hard to manage that experience, that relationship at the individual client level. You really have to manage it in a commingled pool fashion. So for example, venture, real estate, hard to slice and dice that up into super tiny checks for a variety of reasons. You have finite funding periods, you have finite periods where you need to do capital calls and deploy capital into opportunities. Whereas something like crypto, crypto can be direct indexed. You can have thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of accounts, each effectively investing with the same manager's strategy, but they can have the actual ownership of the end account. And so I won't dive too much into the details there, but that's one reason, which is just the operational complexity to manage a large volume of relationships or client accounts, which could in many ways distract you from just the core investing job. There's also a bunch of rules around accreditation. So even if you were a top tier alternatives manager today and you could figure out the operational go-to-market to manage client capital, if you're not accredited, which as of today is $200,000 a year for a couple of years of income, or I think a million dollars in net worth, you cannot legally accept retail capital. And even if you could accept retail capital, you can't charge carry to those investors. So there's a bunch of economic incentives, regulatory complexity, and operational lack of scalability that if the burden of hand is $10 million or $100 million check from a large endowment, that's like one wire and you're done, you get back to your day job, it's no wonder. And so that's precisely what Titan aims to solve. And so if we can be one line item on a cap table, if you're an institution, or if it can be a direct indexed fund strategy or something we can create a public vehicle like we've done with Apollo and Carlisle or in the Arc Venture as well, we can remove the operational complexity from the end manager. We can do it in a way that's regulatory compliant, which we've done with Interval Funds. They're 40-act SEC registered funds. And if we can show that retail actually is interested in alternatives, we can show a path to managing hundreds or maybe billions of dollars of capital on our platform, you don't necessarily need carried interest to make that a really good business. And so we've sort of just block by block tried to understand all the reasons retail has been inaccessible or just the juice not worth the squeeze for managers. And I think the scales have tipped over the last month with some of the launches we've done. Candidly, now our problem in each is like the supply is, is so large of managers that have pinged us asking to get on the platform. I think that's probably the next set of challenges for us, which is not every manager should be managing retail capital. Some of them are top tier and others, there's an adverse selection problem. You start to see this a lot in the crowdfunding world, right? The startups that go onto these platforms are the ones that couldn't raise from traditional venture, probably for some very valid reasons. And so we're both simultaneously trying to enable and acquire the supply of top tier managers, but also curating them so that the retail investor has a great experience. Yeah, it's such a great note on curation versus being a true platform. And I love that Titan's having a point of view on behalf of the retail investors as to what funds to provide access to. A lot of the excitement has been around providing access for consumers. Today, you have to be an institution, you have to be a high net worth individual to get access to funds from Apollo, from Carlisle, now Kathy Wood's crossover fund, some of the most respected investors there are. Today, Titan is providing a source to go do that, but you're also providing a capital source for some of these really large, highly credible asset managers. Why are they going with Titan versus other approaches to accessing retail capital? Yeah, candidly, I don't think there are that many other approaches. 
we may be one of the very few that have done this for true retail. And I think it's important to also qualify like what is retail. When we say retail, we truly mean like, obviously suitability and those sorts of things are paramount. Like you have to get that stuff right, but no external exogenous restrictions, whether that's on the income you make or the net worth you make. For example, there are certain platforms that have tried to democratize or open access for credit investors and even what are called qualified purchasers, those with five plus million of assets to invest. But if you just look at the histogram, so to speak, of like the American like general population, you're talking about the 0.01% of people is even a QP, right? And I think only 10 to 15% of Americans are even accredited. So if you really want to say, we're a very mission-driven firm, open access to the vast majority of folks who haven't had access, we mean unaccredited retail. And unaccredited retail, it's not just digitizing the experience. There really haven't been many vehicles to do that, right? And this interval fund is one such vehicle that we landed on that's quite novel. And the beauty of that is it's a continuous fundraising vehicle. And so the what you need to believe if you're a top tier manager is you may not necessarily need to get a bunch of million dollar checks from Titan in a finite period of time. But if you could have a fund that's continuously fundraising where Titan's doing all of the user acquisition engagement work for them, you can paint a path to managing billions of AUM in a world where institutions are already pretty heavily allocated to alternatives, right? Like this is not, if you look, I think institutions typically around 50% portfolio allocation to alternatives, retail is an order of magnitude less, sub 5%. So if you're sitting here and you're thinking about the 2025, 2030 goals, and a lot of these managers are also public companies, you know, they're painting the five-year plan, really hard to see how you can cager your alternative asset base at a double-digit rate without incorporating retail into the equation. And so as they went to the drawing board to understand what's out there for true unaccredited retail, to my knowledge, Titan's one of the only platforms. And I think they've seen the scale and rate at which we've grown in the last five years. And their instinct was that there's something there. And so I think we love to be able to build out the storefront for each of these managers. That's sort of one interesting kind of vector that we're thinking about. But as Anish said earlier, always under the guise of curation, there are supermarkets of alternatives for credit investors that have thrown everything into every aisle and just assumed that the folks walking through the store know what they want to buy. But if you really understand and put yourselves in the shoes of a retail on a credit investor, they don't know which of the 10 types of ketchup on the shelf to choose. And so you can think about Titan as like, we're building a supermarket infrastructure, but with the personal shoppers for folks that maybe need a little bit of handholding to understand going through the alternatives aisle, the real, the real estate or the private credit aisle, what the products do, how they could be good for them. And at the end of the day, we're, we're a consumer technology business. So it is really expensive and hard to acquire customers, even if you are a household name like an Apollo or Carlisle, paying significant amounts of money for a single funded account. And there's a handful of ways we've been able to do that much more organically that I think they also find quite attractive. The only ketchup I eat, Clay, is Captain Ketchup. So... <laughs> so changing for me. <laughs> hey, so maybe could I talk a little bit about the similarities or differences between you and what you're building in Fidelity? I know you sort of talked about them as a historical inspiration. What have they done in the past that might look like this or, or how is this different? Fidelity, and I would also put Schwab in there. Not many people know, if you go back into the, you know, the 70s and 80s when these businesses first hit this kind of tipping point, upward slope of the S-curve, a lot of them were focused on just a fraction of the things that you think about them as today, right? Like Fidelity is like in many ways, the everything store for investing. I would say all have over the past five years as Robinhood really eradicated commission trading. So they've all had to find new revenue sources. And hey, I think Schwab looks much more like a bank 
than Fidelity, for example. But the point is, if you go back to the 70s, 80s, they all started with a niche. And you touched on what's the core difference. They actually looked quite similar to Titan in the early days. They had these like mutual fund marketplaces. And back when mutual funds were the way that you would have a human managing money. A lot of these ideas were tried. But I think because the core business that was taking off for them back then was self-directed trading, once they put feelers out for that sort of business, and just the UX around the marketplace, the fund marketplace initiative they had was a little bit of the problem I mentioned earlier on throw everything into the store and assume people will know what they're going to pick. I think the user experience is like the unsung problem for this particular market. You have to have a curated, personalized way to make these products approachable. Like this is the first time really over the last couple of years, retail has even understood what alternatives mean. So we're different in a handful of ways. One is that we're tackling a specific wedge. and We feel like we're much more focused than those businesses. And they have a little bit of a champagne problem, I will admit. Like they don't need to focus because they have so many things working, right? They all have a self-directed trading arm. They all have a robo-advisor. They all have a bank. They all do you know, some form of lending. So they have a lot of arrows in their quiver. And five years ago, this would be looked at as too small of a market. Like if you want to move the needle on a $100 billion enterprise value company, I could see them being like, the retail is just not worth the squeeze. But I think you're going to see that tune change. You know, we've chatted with folks at those sorts of companies. It is changing. Like in real time, we're seeing the attitude towards retail really change. But building in a digital first mobile native way is key. And so that is the one advantage we do have is fresh rails, a pretty top team of talent from mostly consumer DNA companies, not actually financial services. And I think that's actually one of our bigger advantages. But the beauty of this market is it's big enough for everyone. It's not a zero-sum game. And if I fast forward 10 years, I think Fidelity will still be around. Schwab will still be around. I think there'll be some new challenges at the table. But the beauty of the market size is like there's enough for everyone. Clay, you keep coming back to this idea of curation and like curation in the marketplace. And these large top investors are coming to you or coming to Titan as their retail distribution mechanism. You can imagine if you're right and retail is a tremendous opportunity for them to grow assets over the coming decade plus, they may shift to wanting more of a Shopify-like model where they build or have their own storefront. How do you think about that, having the marketplace versus the Shopify approach and what they're going to be interested in? Yeah, it's a great question because we had these conversations with some of the partners that we've struck partnerships with. And I think what you're getting at is like white labeling right? Versus Titan owning the relationship. You know, if you show up to the storefront, is it a Titan storefront? And there's a XYZ partner aisle in the store, right? Is there a real estate aisle? And then you have your own branded products or is this the XYZ manager store? And Titan just happens to like, you know, come in and assemble the shelves before you put your products on it. I think you're going to see us look much more like the Titan store, but the beauty of technology, and you've actually seen literally that example you mentioned of Shopify. You've actually seen it in real time, how Amazon's reacted to that Shopify. I don't know if people have taken a close look. It was a very elegant solution to the problem. So you may not even notice, but if you go onto Amazon right now and you search for specific, let's say take like a luxury, like I think Gucci's on Amazon. Let's take your like high-end designer item. It may still be in beta, but I remember seeing an example of the Burberry or the Gucci store on Amazon, like fully, like the UX was reskinned. It felt like their own bespoke store. But if you look up in the URL, you can see it's amazon.com slash you know, insert brand, right? And the beauty of that is Amazon can continue to do what they do best, which is like the logistics, the last mile delivery, providing a lot of the data, the recommendation logic to make that a good experience. But if you're the manager in this case for us, 
your brand still is front and center. And that brand, you want that to resonate with people. You want your products to be memorable. And you have your fiduciary duty and you want to make sure that if you stamp your product with your name, it's landing well. So that's, for example, how if you check out the Arc Venture product today, you literally go to the app store, it may actually feel like Kathy's app. And that was by design. That wasn't an accident. So that's the beauty of technology. I don't think you can actually do what you're just described in an offline world. But the ability to place custom logic in various places, we can solve for the best managers in the world having retail-facing products and brands and controlling that experience and Titan looking, maybe not necessarily like a Shopify, but more like that Amazon approach I described. But at the end of the day, we really value the customer relationship and we want to continue to own that. That makes a ton of sense in the the Shopify Amazon analogy. You've seen on both sides, Amazon building storefronts within Amazon and even Shopify today is helping their customers with customer acquisition as well. And so you can see somewhere in between landing for Titan. So while on the topic of customer acquisition, it's no secret, the last year has been a challenging time to be a consumer fintech company. VCs have clamored to invest in these businesses. And with such capital, these companies have spent aggressively to continue to grow at fast clips. This means these companies are competing on Facebook, Instagram, Google. Curious, Clay, what strategies you all have seen and been impressed by among your peer set and you know how Titan's going about acquiring customers more efficiently? I think we're really excited about partnerships. If you think about what we're building as like a business cool case study, you'd say network effects were probably the most robust part of what we're building. And it's actually accidental. We didn't set out say, oh, we want to build a network. But we just happened to, over the last five years, realize that as we built our own in-house products, Going back to Amazon, I kind of, I liken it to like Amazon with like CDs and books in like late 90s. The hypothesis was prove that people want to buy stuff online. You do it the easiest to ship products first, even if it's more capital intensive. And then more and more merchants are like, wait, I want an online store. And that happens to be the majority of Amazon's enterprise value today is from that business, the third-party business. So similarly, we were dog feeding ourselves our own products for the last five years. We realized that a lot of the magic of Titan was the ability to customize user experience and take customers along for the ride and whatever products they were in. And now all of a sudden, a lot of these managers akin to merchants 20 years ago, want a retail store. They want a retail facing brand. And so for us, I think the beauty of that is natural customer acquisition at little to no cost. You can think about like a merchant, they have a following, they have a brand that resonates, they're putting that brand online. Naturally, a lot of those customers that follow them are gonna come with them. And that's free customer acquisition for the store enabler, in this case, Titan. So well, that's Kathy Wood and her you know, million plus followers on Twitter and huge fan base with all the ARC products. Well, that's some of the tier one alternatives managers like Carlisle. If we attract top tier brands and personalities and their networks, we acquire customers that we can obviously cross sell and upsell and show the menu of the rest of the Titan products at a really attractive rate. There's other partnerships I think we're excited about too beyond product. But like you said, we're not too excited about is the rat race of paid social acquisition or even things like SEO. It just They're very long dated. It's really tough if you're still a growth stage startup to get quick learnings. And that's the phase we're in at Titan is just quick learnings, wanting to learn, ship quickly. Partnerships are not learn, ship quickly, to be clear. Like these are six plus months in the making. But the note on the keyboard that works for the last five years amidst unprecedented inflation around paid social, that game's over. And I'm very bearish on that. And so would behoove any other entrepreneurs to try to find more like novel ways that really fit their product. And for us, 
partnerships is just a natural fit for what we're trying to build. Just to change tacks for a second. So you talked about the access layer of Titan, which is very powerful in a lot of what we've spoken about today. But the experience layer of Titan for me is at least is interesting. And Alex sort of touched on consumer behavior during market contractions. One is redemptions where possible. And then the other is you just don't want to hear from your wealth manager. I don't think mine's called me in approximately 10 months. So is that true for Titan as well? Or why is Titan different? Or is it? It's different for Titan. People absolutely want to engage. If you looked at our engagement stats, you cut them a bunch of different ways, but it looked more like a social network, certainly than a, a traditional robo-advisor or wealth manager. Part of it is because it's by design. It's a feature, not a bug of our experience. Like we're super transparent. Part of the partner selection process, for example, is transparency. Like if you're the type of fund manager that likes to do like a once a year, couple blurb email to LPs and then kind of be off the grid, it's not going to be a great fit. Part of the reason I think retail has an optimal alternative is because they're really opaque. And it's a black box and we're the opposite. I think most of our clients engage daily or weekly. And so naturally, if the behavior of Titan is super transparent, open box, understand everything about every product you're invested in, there's a natural sense of trust and transparency. People are okay opening the app, even if they know that they're going to see red. And so I think the traditional advisor world, again, a feature, not a bug that they don't benchmark. They don't really give you a clear sense of how you're doing. It's because... Most of them don't really spend much time with their clients other than maybe a quarterly call, you know, checking in, like, how's your family and kids doing? And so the bar has been raised, I think, with consumer expectations in retail. You're not going to be able to get away with a quarterly or semi-annual update, a 90-page prospectus in the mail. And I think the consumer is, if that's your business, as you mentioned, like in times like the last nine months, people self-first ask questions later. I will say the biggest advantage those sorts of advisors have is the brand and the trust. You know, if you have a decades-long relationship with someone's family, unlikely to churn just because of a little bit of volatility. So we're simultaneously trying to be super transparent and open access to these alternatives in a really, really clear way, but also realize the more transparent we are, the more volatility there is, the lower the lockups, the more liquid things are, the easiest for them to leave us. So just more of an impetus for us to try to build sticky products that perform well, that are balanced, and be really clear about expectations when people come in. Totally. And it's, you know, all the many innovations from Kathy, it feels like she's one of the most open source investors there has been, like the idea calls and some of the other things she's done with her audience. So I'm psyched to see that stuff come to Titan. Yeah, I think this is very well known in like the public equities world, the hedge fund world. It's less applicable to VC and PE where, you know, there actually is information arbitrage and asymmetry, but I don't think any informational alpha really exists in public markets. And that's why you've seen a lot of public managers be very transparent, Kathy included. You've seen this with the likes of like folks like Altimeter. I'm trying to remember folks on Twitter that have just put out a lot of content. And obviously some of them have, when volatility strikes, some of them tend to produce less. And that's a separate topic. <laughs> but the point stands is like they, they've stuck their neck out and been transparent. I think in almost a positive admission that information and like being a little bit faster than the next guy or girl is not the source of advantage. It's usually time arbitrage and having great LPs. And so I think that may at some point hit private markets too, but because there's not much informational alpha in public markets, we were transparent from the start with our own products and we've been super transparent with, you know, Kathy's product as well. Awesome. We chatted earlier about why these lead managers haven't been direct to retail in the past. One of the many reasons is incentives. Typically, these lead managers earn revenue via 
their management fees, typically 2%, and then carried interest, most typically 20%, so 2 and 20 model. Translating that to a platform like Titan can happen, but has complexity as well. Maybe talk about the fee structures that you're going to market with, with your initial managers, and you know how consumers should think about that. Yeah. So incentives are really important here because if managers aren't incentivized to build and scale great products, it doesn't matter if they're on the Titan platform. It's not going to be a win-win relationship. So first, understand the lay of the land. You can't charge carried interest to unaccredited investor. I mean, not many people know that, but it's not the fact that they won't pay it. It's the fact that you literally cannot charge it. There's a few caveats to that, something called a fulcrum fee, which I won't get into. But for all intents and purposes, you can't charge carried retail. Simultaneously, you obviously want to build a product where the incentives are aligned. And what's great about carried interest, obviously, is managers win when retail investors win. And if they don't, yeah, they have a management fee, but ostensibly that really only funds you know, operating expenses of the business. So we simultaneously had to come up with something that was compliant from a regulatory standpoint, but also was a win-win if the manager did their job right. And so let's take Arc Venture, for example. You're sitting here today, the Arc Venture expense ratio, I think it's capped at 4.22%. You know, super high sticker shock on the surface if I think about like what typical investors are probably paying with equities. 10 basis points for their S&P ETF, maybe 50 basis points for an active ETF. But if you double click into alternatives and what to expect from a product like Cathy, the median VC IRR over the last 10 years, I think is around 15, 16%. Now, huge dispersion in the returns from 0% to 35%, right? And the median somewhere in the mid-teens. But what that translates to is well over a 3x over 10 years. So if Cappy and her team, the Arc Venture products, can deliver, I think it's roughly 11, 12% IRR. In other words, below the last 10 years median IRR over the next 10 years, that'd be about a 3x. Their 4.22% fee would actually be cheaper than a 2 and 20 fee. So TLDR, the way that these managers think is, how can I come up with a fee structure that's both palatable and compliant with the regulatory landscape, but also be not only comparable, but even cheaper than traditional VC or private equity fees if they do their job right? And the key there is obviously if they do their job, right? And if you as an investor aren't excited or don't believe in the product, then the fees kind of don't matter anyway, right? And if you do believe in the product the fees sort of work themselves out. So I think you're going to see more and more of like, how can an old school industry fee structure be modernized? Or how can the vehicle kind of evolve to meet retail where they are while still having it be a great value prop and a win-win? And that's kind of what we've seen with our venture product. I think you'll see more examples of that sort of fund structure. For sure. And I think for the top performing funds, they'd obviously prefer the carried interest component because if they're going to bet on themselves then the upside, they're able to earn more. And then, so as you look to the next evolution of Titan, today, you're unable to provide carried interest funds to unaccredited investors. And so much of what you guys do is about serving the unaccredited, those that don't have access today to these elite funds. What do you think of that regulation? Like, do you think carried interest should be able to be paid by unaccredited? I'll split my answer into two. One is why would a manager agree to this, right? Like if they believe they can shoot the lights out, they would just serve accredited at 20% carry all day. I think from our conversations, they see it as a compliment to their institutional businesses. This is not cannibalistic. 
they're not thinking retail starts to take share from institutional. It is a net new focus, like strategic plan for them to serve retail alongside institution. And it's a continuous fundraising vehicle. So in many ways, this is an incremental additive to their business, not cannibalistic. What you segment. Totally. And so they're capturing additional area under the curve of opportunity and simultaneously retail is getting access. So that's on the manager incentives. Like how do you square those two points? And I have, I have a lot of thoughts on accreditation. I like to say, I know a lot of smart people that make sub 200K a year who are actually great investors. And I know some people that make a lot of cash and are accredited who are awful investors. So if my sample set of network is any indication, accreditation rules can definitely evolve. I've heard rumors of there being an exam, almost like a SAT kind of exam, right? For accreditation, you answer a bunch of questions and you can sort of self-accreditate. You've already seen some moves in it over the last few years. You've seen now folks that are employed, right? At investment firms and so forth can actually invest in those firms' products, even if they're not accredited. If you have certain FINRA licenses, for example, people that work at fintechs that have Series 7 licenses, I don't know how many people know, there's a lot of people at fintechs that have these licenses. They're accredited. You're actually accredited if you have these licenses. So you're starting to see, I think, governing bodies modernize and evolve what accreditation means. I think it'll change. If you look at how we're putting our money where our mouth is, we think it's going to change. And as a result, it's going to widen the pool for everyone. And I think it's going to be good. But insofar as there is accreditation, I think Carrie ultimately incentivizes performance. And in many ways, it incentivizes risk. And I do think there should be some guardrails on who can take significant amounts of risk particularly in a very illiquid way. So I'm not a huge fan of, you know, you can say almost like everyone can manage anyone's money at any fee structure. I think there's a bunch of case studies of how that goes very badly. So I think regulation needs to be thoughtful. I think it's important. I think it'll evolve and hopefully we can play a role in some of that. I love that point. And one might even say that we've kept these investors so safe, we've kept them safe from all the returns as well. Yeah, it's, again, I think the arbitrary income is probably the hardest one to wrap my brain around. You know, that being said, there's a lot of examples of investors getting fleeced with the too good to be true sort of thing. So I think the interval fund is one step, I think, in the right direction where it's a registered fund. Just to be clear, there are disclosure requirements. This is not just a new vehicle, a loophole or a hack. It's a registered fund. You need to go through a lot of hoops to set this up. And we in the ARC team spent a lot of work to get it set up. And so it's almost like that famous psychologist who talks about a, why did Uber work, right? Like, why, did, why would people get in a stranger's car? I think he was using taxi drivers as an example. And the example was, it's so hard and takes so long to get one of these medallions and obviously to learn your way around the city that the cost of doing something unseemly to a passenger and possibly losing that license, that cost is so far exceeds any benefit. And it's sort of this weird self-regulating mechanism. And I think in many ways, like the regulation in the US around accreditation has sort of, there's exceptions to the rule, by and large, it's been helpful, but it's going to become more and more important for it to evolve as more and more of the opportunity wealth management is an alternative. It's growing double digits. And I think the rest of the space is growing far, far less. So very bullish on there being some evolution. Yeah, it's funny. Mark shared this at the breakfast we did with Kathy, but he was talking about how when Apple went public in 1980, the state of Massachusetts felt that it was too speculative and risky for their population to buy. They warned everyone in the state against purchasing Apple stock, that it was a speculative risk asset that no one should own, no retail should own. Mm. One follow-up question to that. So, you know, assuming that every retail investor should have some alternatives in their portfolio, where do they start? How should they think about 
portfolio allocation and composition with your note on alternatives in mind? Yeah, when we were exploring launching new alternative asset classes on Titan, we had this problem, which is precisely what you mentioned. What slices are right for which people, for what deposit size? It's a really, really complex multivariate problem. So we actually started with, look at the Yale endowment and that pie of how Yale endowment is allocated as kind of a blueprint of ostensibly have access to anything in the world they want to invest in from sports teams to natural resources to you name it. And if that's the blueprint about how retail should have access, assuming they're suitable, what should the various slices look like for whom? So we basically start, if you download the Titan apps today, in just a few minutes, we'll capture information about, you know, what are your goals? What's your tolerance for liquidity? How would you feel if the market dropped 10%? Be honest with yourself, how would you actually react? And as well as economic information. And based on that, it's this recommendation engine. It'll recommend an asset class allocation for you, first and foremost. And then it'll show you double click at each slice of asset class. That could be real estate. That could be credit, private credit. We'll give you, based on our understanding of your information, what we think the best product for you is. That's a function of a few things. One is the expected return of asset classes. Right? So the expected return of ventures far, far better than the expected return of private credit. But there's obviously a lot of incremental risk, just numerically, of the asset class compared to private credit or, let's say, something like fixed income. So we calibrate it on a few things. But Anish, if you told me I have a 15-year investment horizon, I could care less about volatility. You know, I could still make any drawdown that you can throw at me. You'd probably have a pretty meaningful allocation alternatives of illiquid products. We'd also take stock of your outside info, though. And I think it's super important for fintechs to understand. You're not the only fintech app on someone's phone. <laughs> you need to capture outside information to actually give a good faith view. And so that's what we've done with this engine too, is we actually capture, hey, are you allocated in passive equities on Fidelity? Or do you have some Tesla stock on Schwab? And that's also factored into the equation. So the short answer is it always depends. It's a super personal question. But the goal is that we can give you that entire Yale endowment pie on tight. We're not quite there yet. We're getting there with real estate and private credit. But I would say thematically, in this environment, we're seeing a lot of demand for income products. So I mentioned the cords or the notes of the last 10 years were crypto and tech stocks and to some extent real estate. Now it's much more focused on credit and income and FDIC insured yield that people are focused on. So we've launched products in those and we'll have more of those coming up. Awesome. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for coming in, Clay. Thank you, Alex. It was a fantastic, fun conversation.